Hey, it's Darcy McConvey, and this is the Venture and Gains podcast. The purpose of the show is to connect people to other great people, ideas, and opportunities. Everyone has less than a handful of people in their network where it seems like there's something different about them. Everything they touch seems to turn to gold. These are the podcast guests. We catch them at various stages of their career, learn from how they think, so we can connect the dots and apply it. This season is sponsored by Inward Breathwork, the world's largest on-demand breathwork platform. If you've ever struggled with meditation or looking to relieve stress and anxiety, sleep better and improve your mood, then I highly recommend Inward Breathwork. I came across this via friend recommendation and it's way better than I could have imagined. Breathwork is transformative. When I was thinking about my podcast, I always wanted to align with amazing people products and this is one of them try a seven day free trial now using our special discount code vg25 find them at inwardbreathwork.com calm confident and reassuring adam reeds walks us through the original idea and hyper growth of his digital asset lending company ledin from an idea building a financial services company on bitcoin rails to how he's gone about growing a startup financial services company by building trust with consumers, being transparent, and working with third-party providers and trusted sources. An amazing platform. Adam shares light on where they are today, the value in what they were doing, and the open road ahead. You can find them at ledin.io, L-E-D-N.io. Enjoy this episode with Adam. So why don't you give me a, a background on on the business you've started and are growing and, um, you know, some of the things you're tackling? Of course, I'd, I'd love to. Yeah, so we created a business to build financial services specifically on Bitcoin Rails. So I actually come from an energy investing background, and and that was the connection to get me into to Bitcoin. So I was actually into Bitcoin mining with a good friend that I went to business school with, Mauricio, several years back. And as we were trying to expand our mine, uh, we ran into challenges with financing it. So coming from an infrastructure background, I was looking around and at the time, uh, Mauricio was attuned to different lending programs that were popping up uh, in the Bitcoin space. And we thought that we could create a, a pretty cool business providing financing for Bitcoin as an asset and then taking some of the lessons that I had learned uh, from infrastructure financing and the demand for yield at the time and really matching it up for the demand to borrow in the space, uh, just given the lack of financial services. So we created the business three years ago and uh, founded with a small team in Toronto that uh, had the right skill sets to put together a business that was tech enabled to allow many different people to access it and secure and then also compliance. So obviously, when you, when you get talking about anything around financial services, compliance and regulatory pieces is a big deal. So we brought in another close uh, classmate from business school. Ken Ng is our chief legal officer and another colleague that I worked with before at uh, Dream Asset Management. Uh, Carlos is our lead for compliance and operations. And then another good friend, uh, actually two good friends to lead uh, our technology, which was uh, Mina as our CTO and Anton as our first developer. So that was the founding team that we started with uh, a few years back and have been scaling the business and are now in 105 countries. So it's been great to see it start from a small idea and and, uh, get to where we are today. So how big is the team right now? Right now we're 40 people, the majority of which are in Toronto. 
And we have a do have a few people internationally uh, just for client support to be in uh, different time zones and also to make sure that uh, we're addressing local market needs uh, in key markets for us. So yeah, it's been exciting. We were a, a much smaller team even six months ago. And so the growth, especially in the last six months, has been phenomenal. So I guess walk me through exactly what you do and where Len fits into this, you know, cryptocurrency, blockchain. Bitcoin ecosystem? Of course, happy to. Yeah, so uh, maybe I'll take it product by product. So the very first product we launched was a Bitcoin-backed loan, dollar loan. And what that meant was it's essentially akin to a mortgage. And so it, it's a way for people to access dollars uh, in their Bitcoin without selling it. So we collateralize Bitcoin. So for every $2 of Bitcoin that someone owns, we lend them $1 to be conscious of the volatility that Bitcoin has. And uh, it's a 12-month loan product, and our economics on there is an upfront fee and then an interest rate spread. Every product that we have really has two clients. So we're really matching the retail demand to borrow against Bitcoin with the institutional demand to lend dollars. So we borrow USD from institutions who want to obtain yield, and then we lend out those dollars to uh, individuals on an aggregated basis and uh, allow them to access this loan product. And then we have several other products. We have a savings product that uh, allows people to earn interest on Bitcoin. So in a sense, it's the reverse. For those that want to hold Bitcoin but don't have a need for cash, they can hold that Bitcoin with lead in. We'll pay them an interest rate on it. And then we lend that Bitcoin out to institutions who have a need to borrow that asset. And then we also have a trade product that we've launched that allows you to swap in between Bitcoin and USD. And then a few variations of the savings and loan product as well. What product is garnering the most interest or the highest demand? Yeah, definitely the most accessible is our Bitcoin savings account. So it's, it's I would say, it's much easier to convince someone to deposit Bitcoin uh, in, a, in a savings account and agree to, to pay them interest on it than it is to really illustrate the different pieces of a, of a loan. So with a loan, it's a bit more complex to get your head around. I'd say, you know, you don't kind of walk around a corner and say, I'm going to take a mortgage. But if it's, you know, you, do, you want to deposit some dollars and get a uh, a yield on it. That's a different activity. So the savings product has definitely been growing the quickest, but we also have a variation of our loan product called B2X that allows you to use your existing Bitcoin, borrow against it, and then buy more Bitcoin with it. So that's been a really popular product, uh, especially as people look to own more of an asset they already love. So walk me through that. I have Bitcoin. Actually, walk me through the process, just like very simple entry-level person. You know, I own a couple of Bitcoin, say, and it's in a wallet somewhere. And now I come across your site. Like, what am I doing? And then if I want to lend it out to buy more Bitcoin, how does that work? Yeah. So the setup would be, if so if you want to start with a, the loan product, you would create an account with Latin. Uh, we would KYC you as a, as a client to make sure that uh, we know who you are and we confirm that you're not on any sanction list and that we're able to, to work with you. We would then create... A just, just out of curiosity, sorry to interrupt, like, when you're KYCing people, is that third-party technology? Is that all internal? Yeah, it's a good question. So when we first created the business, uh, we were doing it all ourselves. Uh, but what we found was that it really wasn't our core comp uh, competency to, to stay on top of what an ID looks like in every different major market worldwide. So we actually worked with a third-party vendor uh, to integrate their uh, ID, ID technology into our platform. So it's still seamless for the customer. They don't have to go to a different place to use it, but it is a third-party technology that confirms that the ID is valid and we collect a selfie and a few other different pieces to make sure that uh, we're, 
we're doing what we need to do for regulatory purposes. Yeah, and I don't mean to derail the original question, but I always, the adoption for the general public, like things like, you know, selfing yourself and just, just like the, the hurdles that you have to sometimes get over, I'm sure deter a lot of people. So the closer you can get to, you know, what we know today as financial services or historically, you know, the better it is for the scalability, ultimately, it would seem. Yeah, absolutely. So that that's really the main, I think when people talk about, you know, banking the unbanked, it's really more of an identity problem. And, uh, you know, that that's a whole topic on its own. But, you know, just getting access to that, uh, there's you know a lot of pieces that are needed to just set up some basic financial infrastructure. Okay, so we go back. So we're, I've KYC myself, I've got two Bitcoin somewhere, and then what? Yeah, so you have two Bitcoin uh, at today's price. Those two Bitcoin would be worth uh, each Bitcoin is trading around uh, thirty-two thousand U.S. dollars per Bitcoin right now. So two Bitcoin on the open market would be sixty-four thousand dollars. So we would lend you thirty-two thousand uh, dollars U.S. And so you would create the account. Uh, once you enter the account, you'll see our loan product. For each loan, we give you a unique Bitcoin address. So you would deposit your Bitcoin into that unique address. You would specify the amount that you'd want to borrow. And then within 24 hours, we will process a payment and uh, send you the US dollars associated with it. So it's a much quicker process. Uh, sometimes we're able to do things in uh, even a few minutes because there's no, uh, unlike the you know traditional lending, we don't have to do a credit check because it's asset-backed lending. So we have the asset in custody. So there's no default risk with, with lead in based on any individual borrower specifics. So in the case of using Bitcoin to buy more Bitcoin, it goes from Bitcoin, I borrow 50% of what I effectively, the value, it's asset back. That's the loan I get. It goes to USD, it converts to USD, and then I buy again via USD versus buying Bitcoin with Bitcoin. I guess that wouldn't really make sense, would it? Yeah, it's actually a little simpler than that. So what these setup of it, we really simplified the process because you could do exactly what you said, Darcy. You, you could take the dollars, you know, at 50%, just as with the example we went through, you know, deposit two Bitcoin worth 64,000, you know, borrow 32,000, you know, go to an exchange, buy that $32,000 worth of Bitcoin and come back and do it all over again. And the way the math works is if you kind of do it to infinity, you end up doubling your Bitcoin. So what we figured out was like, if we just allowed people to borrow the same amount that they deposited in Bitcoin, we could lend them that same amount. So instead of lending them 32,000, we actually lend them in that same example, 64,000. And the reason we can do that is the amount of Bitcoin that they just bought stays with, with Lenin as well in, in our custody as security against the loan. So in that example, you deposit two Bitcoin, we're 64,000. We'd lend you $64,000 US, buy two more Bitcoin. So now you actually have you know, $128,000 worth of Bitcoin with a $64,000 loan against it. So the end underwriting of it is exactly the same. It's still a 50% loan to value, two to one collateral. And uh, yeah, we can um, uh, just simplify the whole process. And then am I paying current outside of that account for the whatever it costs me to borrow? So you're paying currently it's 9.5% annual interest for that loan. It's accrued, but not paid until the end of the term. So we decided pretty early on that it didn't make sense to collect monthly interest when we had, again, the asset is security at, at pretty conservative loan to value. So we just accrue that interest and you can repay the loan at any time without penalty. So it's really, really flexible. The loans are available for up to 12 months. And then if everything's good, we just renew the loan again. So you can keep kind of reboring, but we just wanted to have some finite period to it. So it's a 12 month loan, nine and a half percent interest rate with a 2% upfront uh, admin fee. 
And how do you get to that number, nine and a half? Uh, nine and a half, it's really based on the market dynamics. So it's still expensive to borrow dollars in the space. And the reason is, the a great example I always go to is if you're going to attract dollars to the space to lend against Bitcoin, I would say institutions are still fairly conservative on it. And if they're going to lend against Bitcoin, many would just own Bitcoin itself. So I would say because of that, there's a continual shortage of dollars in the digital asset market. And so for that reason, it still makes dollars quite expensive. So that's why you're seeing like nine and a half percent versus, you know, half a percent, obviously, in the traditional banking sector. I think longer term, this will converge and it'll be very similar to how it works, like to borrow, you know, different, uh, you know, equities, right? When you're paying, you know, 3% in your different um, account for buying traditional stocks. It's interesting. The institutions that would be on the other side of these, like, are they what we would classify as traditional like lending institutions or are they kind of more sort of a, a smaller subset of, you know, privates or, or uh, I don't really know what I'm sort of looking for there, but it's not, it's not one of the big five Canadian banks necessarily, or is it? Yeah, I would say you know, the cadence of institutions getting into it is quite similar to, I'd say, any new technology. So even though it's a very different asset class, I do see a lot of similarities in my own experience of when I first got into investing in my prior career, which was renewable power, there was you know an order in which you saw uh, different groups getting interested in, in it because it's new and novel, right? So when I first started investing in solar, it was high net worth that was comfortable taking a chance and trying out the new technology. And then I think you see like a change in the questions that are asked in due diligence from investors. So it kind of starts with what's the tech? That sounds really scary. And then as things mature, it gets much more into what's the regulation and what is the contractual terms like. So it's it's similar in Bitcoin. I think you know originally when we first started the, the uh, product, actually our first lender was a, our first uh, equity investor. So we thought that we couldn't launch the business unless we, of course, had the debt capital lined up. So our, one of our first investors was uh, Andrew Clark, who I, I knew from our the energy world and uh, his group, uh, Red Jar, they actually put up uh, the first uh, debt capital for the business, along with uh, another um, good um, friend and, and prior um, guess, colleague of Andrew's as well. So with that, that's kind of the order of things that came in. And then today what we're seeing is, is much larger institutions getting interested in it. But kind of in between there, I would say that the most familiar to the class would be those that have experienced trading commodities. So one of our investors is uh, Susquehanna Investment Group. Uh, that's a very large prop trading fund uh, in the U.S. Uh, that has experience trading commodities, and there's a lot of similarities, I think, with those that you know, and familiar with trading uh, futures exchanges and, and different pieces. And so Bitcoin's in a way a bit of a resurgence through that. So I think some of the market opportunities that are available within Bitcoin uh, are quite similar to the market opportunities that were available maybe in the 80s and 90s in the traditional uh, investment sector. So a lot of those groups are getting into it because they're seeing a little bit of a deja vu moment. Interesting. So to switch gears a little bit is it's such a fascinating space. You know, there's so many like questions I could, but I don't want to take it, you know, too far down the, a rabbit hole, but so you pop up this business and when you start, like, how do you gain traction? So it's like your go-to-market or, you know, just your, your, your plan to take it from zero to one and then beyond that. And then two, how do you instill confidence in the everyday user where there's so much, you know, uncertainty, so much written about it, a lot, like we talked about a lot of, not complexity, but things, hurdles to jump just to get into the market. So I guess start with 
how did you go from zero to one? And then we'll go to how do you generate confidence with the everyday person? Yeah, it's you're bringing me right back uh, to the first uh, few months. And so like I did say startup financial services companies are, are really hard, right? That that initial piece to gain traction is we're very much in the business of selling trust. I'd say it's, it, you know, I always kind of joke that, you know, startup restaurants are cool because you want to try something new, but what you do with your, your wealth and what you do with your assets takes a long time to, to build exactly that, build trust around it. So what we found was that the way we approached the market in the early days was quite different than today. We had to work through different networks. In some cases, we we met our first clients in person. They had to know us. They had to we had to build uh, you know rapport with the community. So we spent a lot of time going to meetups, explaining the business. We put our faces out there. We put our, our reputations on the line and let people know that these are the people behind the company. This is where we work. Come by our office. You know, let people know that what we're doing and, and try to be as open as we can about it. We also found that the more third party key piece of infrastructure we did, the better. So very early on, we integrated BitGo as our third-party custodian because that was a way to say, you know, this is the service. This is where your Bitcoin actually is stored. This is where your assets are. Letting is facilitating it, but trying to be as transparent as we could. And then we found a really great opportunity in working through different key voices in the Bitcoin community that had a good following. So still to this day, we work with uh, BTC Sessions, which is a, a YouTuber uh, and great um, a great guy out of, out of um, uh, Calgary that does great show and educational content on, on Bitcoin. He's He's been a great uh, piece of our business and and many other, uh, I guess, you know, key influencers and uh, Bitcoin educators uh, like him uh, worldwide. So as you're trying to get an early product out, I would say explaining the loan product again was not an easy thing to do, right? The product didn't, didn't exist uh, for many people. Uh, and so uh, really helping them understand how it worked, guiding them through the steps was really key. Yeah, I could imagine. So like, what, when was the inflection point when you were like, okay, I don't have to go to someone's living room. I'm sure you weren't doing that. Maybe you were, but you know, meetups and now the brand is standalone. Like at what point did that happen? How long did that take? You know what? I wouldn't say it was really a key point. It's been a gradual journey to just keeping on building and, and we're still doing this, right? So I will never take down an opportunity to speak, you know, about what we're doing, to to call our customers directly. Like we're every day focused on building more and more in that trust. I think what does happen is you start to get once you hit a critical mass, you get referrals from clients. And that's when things become really compelling, right? Like many businesses, that's the best way to grow is through those that have a good experience using the product. So I think there was a turning point when we got enough momentum, when, when different people started talking about the product uh, and what we were doing around it, uh, that was really key for us. So so getting clients that had heard about uh, it through a friend and, and a friend had had a good experience, you know, humans are social creatures, right? And they want to make sure that they're doing things right and, and people have a network in which they trust. And if they can get a good referral through that network, that's far better than any, uh, you know, cold advertisement that you can do. So we we initially tried many things and you know put our name out there and different avenues, but until people had that association with it, uh, it's not effective. So I'd say still to this day, it's that word of mouth referral. That's the best way for us to gain clients. I think we met a couple of years ago and I uh, wish I made a different choice than I did because it's you guys have been on a rocket ship ever since then, but that's just <laughs> me talking about me and not the point here. So maybe on that note, I think you recently round, raised a round. If, you, if you're comfortable talking about it, maybe tell us sort of where you're at there and sort of where that puts you for the next, you know, your, your go forward roadmap from, from today. 
Yeah, I would be happy to. Yeah, I would say like similar to building trust from a you know different uh, clients in the market and getting the world that way is another great way to build trust is let people know who's behind the company. So for that reason, we are very focused on aligning uh, great investors with what we're doing in the business. So in January of this year, uh, we closed a round with White Star Capital. And then uh, just recently, we closed another round, a $30 million Series A with uh, Kingsway Capital and uh, several other uh, great investors. So Kingsway uh, themselves, they're focused almost exclusively on, on what we like to call growth markets. So they have a view, and I definitely agree with it, that the majority of growth is going to not come from you know North America and economies that are fairly developed, but in, in regions of the world that are growing much faster. So with our ethos too, with Ledin, you know, 20% of our clients are in the US and 80% are in the rest of the world. And so we're very excited about regions of the world like LATAM that, that really need assets like Bitcoin. And, and they saw that vision very clearly. So with that capital, uh, we're using it to, to scale really our team, invest more in engineering, uh, security on, on the platform, invest in, in regulatory compliance, making sure we can open up the business to other regions of the world. And it's been great. So uh, we've got Kingsway behind us. We have Global Founders Capital, as I mentioned, uh, Susquehanna, CMT Digital, that's another great fund in Chicago. Uh, Coinbase Ventures is behind the company. Parify, which is a great fund, uh, really exploring many different aspects of the digital asset space, White Star and, and several others. So uh, it's been great to get that momentum and, and keep uh, building with the, that great group. That's quite the roster. Congrats. Yeah, thank you. So what what other assets do you, like right now it's Bitcoin, USD, like how, what other assets do you see landing on your platform and how did you get to the very select few that you have today? And the reason I ask that is, you know, you see a lot around, there's a zillion of these sort of currencies, right? And, and so, you know, at what point do you decide to add another and why? Yeah, I mean that there's there's a lot, but there's only one Bitcoin, right? And so we were very focused on we kind of joke that the best restaurants have the smallest menu. And so we think that a, a smaller, a limiting choice is actually a good thing. And I think if you look at, you know, many major brands around the world, you know, of course, you know, if you walk into the Apple store, there isn't 20 different things for you to buy. There's, you know, a great computer, one that's slightly cheaper and and maybe one that's that's crazy expensive. But uh, you know, that limitation of choice really provides a better experience. And so we're really trying to provide uh, much fewer things, uh, simplify the experience, but do it really, really well. So uh, when we think about different assets to add, we want to make sure that they're actually uh, valuable to our clients. And we do have requests to add things like Ethereum that, that we are considering and other stable coins uh, like USDC that we support too. But we don't want to create a casino of, of different assets uh, because we think that unfortunately, a lot of different assets in the space may not have long-term value. And we want to make sure that uh, we're doing our best to, to guide that and, and simplify the overall experience. So I think what's really, really special about Bitcoin is it did have, if I can call it this, you know, somewhat of an immaculate conception, right? Bitcoin does not have a founder. It has a founder in, you know, in, its, in its form, Satoshi Nakamoto, but it doesn't have an active CEO. It doesn't have anyone that uh, if they disappear, or if, if they go away, uh, something happens to it versus many other projects. There's there's a management team behind it. So that's really special. And it's really, really difficult, if not impossible, to recreate. So we're very, very excited about the future of Bitcoin. Uh, stable coins provide an interesting alternative, especially for people in growth markets uh, that, that need the stability of the US dollar to access. So that's an interesting opportunity for different people using it. But yeah, we're being pretty thoughtful about that. So we will add a bit more selection in the future, but we're not going to go crazy. And so 
like what do you see as the practical application of Bitcoin going forward, you know, other than asset appreciation and now you can you can lend it, but like can't really spend it. I, I know you can, but it's it's not like maybe where we thought it might be today. So like how do you see those applications evolving? Yeah, I think it's a great point, Darcy, that it, it isn't uh, to some, I think, where we thought it would be today. Like, it, you know, there was thoughts that it would be a, a payment rails. I think it's okay. I think it's found its use case as a store of value. The other piece is, is that I always just, you know, try to explain, especially you're speaking to other Canadians about uh, about Bitcoin. And if you don't find it valuable, you may not need it. And that's okay, right? I think we're, if you think back, there's we're in the small minority, right? So you're in the investment business. You're talking to wealthy Canadians and you know other people around the globe every day about what what to do with their own assets. And there's a plethora of of options for them, right? There's lots of real estate opportunities. There's lots of opportunities in the equity markets. The reality is many people don't have those opportunities. And so if you're sitting in Zimbabwe and you're saying, what do I do? How do I store my wealth? Bitcoin's very interesting to you because there's only 21 million of them and you can access it. And if you choose to leave Zimbabwe, you still have the exact same Bitcoin with you, right? If you buy a home in Zimbabwe, how do you know that uh, the government isn't going to change the property tax rules? How do you know that the legal title to that property is not going to change when the government changes, right? There's just so many uncertainties that are very hard to appreciate as a Canadian. And so they think that makes uh, Bitcoin really special. Just back to the other coins is I think what is different about Bitcoin than the other ones is many of them are still finding their use case, right? So even Ethereum, uh, which is you know designed to be the, the world computer and provide many different you know aspects of, of how to, to use you know a distributed network with it as it does have competitors, right? Uh, there's other uh, coins and networks out there that are attempting to to dethrone Ethereum. And so we'll, we'll see if that's successful. But I don't think, at least in my own prediction, I don't think nothing else is coming close to dethroning Bitcoin. And I think Bitcoin's found that, that use case of a, a store of value. And I think because of that use case, it's very hard for it to be a payment method because you don't want to store, so you don't want to spend something that you think is going up in value. Yeah, that's... Uh... You know, I guess I know very little about sort of Bitcoin and crypto, but I've kind of always had this sense that it's, I don't know if secure is the right way, but the, you know, the building block on what is to come in essence. And I guess that's kind of in some ways your view as well. When you talk about maybe some of the things going on globally, like I think you're seeing some, some real use cases. I think it's El Salvador, right? That is sort of, implementing it in a big way. So maybe walk me through some of the things that are going on and why it's it's so important. Yeah, this is definitely my my favorite topic to speak about as of recently with the uh, like El Salvador news and I think you know just stepping back before we dive into El Salvador specifically what's interesting about just thinking about what they're able to do there is it, a lot is to do with the setup of that country. And each country is in very, very different position when it comes to digital assets, either adopting Bitcoin or issuing a central bank, a central bank digital uh, currency. And what I mean by that is, again, kind of drawing a comparison with Canada, like our banking system is integral to how like every day, right? So, but for most Canadians, the only reason that they hold Bitcoin or sorry, uh, dollars in a bank account, uh, in my opinion, 
is because of the accessibility that it gives you to the payment networks. So why do I choose to hold five grand in my TD checking account? Well, it's so I can use my TD visa and I can use my e-transfer and pay people. And for that reason, it just makes sense to hold a little bit of money in my checking account. And it's also great, you know, that I can buy, you know, equities and things like that, but I probably wouldn't hold a lot of free cash at the bank if it wasn't for that payment rail uh, that I get access to. And so when they go to talk about the government itself issuing its own digital currency, now what you have is you have a situation where you could disintermediate the banks and meaning that there could be, you know, in the future, I, I don't think this may happen in Canada, but it's definitely in discussion in that the government could directly deposit currency into its own app and you could have like a digital native dollar, right? We don't really have a digital native dollar. We have cash that you can hold, you know, self-sovereign, but you don't have like you, if to do digital banking, you have to do it through a bank today, right? And if you think about a market like El Salvador, they do have banking, but several of the, of the major banks are, from my understanding, are have larger government ownership, and they're also based on the U.S. dollar. So you don't have an issue of you know getting into a situation where you're disrupting local currency flow and disrupting the central bank's ability to ebb and flow that based on the status of the economy. And there's, I think, less of a concern in, in uh, disrupting the banking system. And then when you go to the other extreme of that is you look at a market like China that is moving ahead on adapting central bank digital issue currencies is there's very deep government controls and a lot of things that, that happen in China, right? So it's very situational. And I think you know, the different problems that are being solved in different markets are, are really fascinating to follow. And then, of course, another uh, kind of pillar of that would be the U.S., where the U.S. dollar plays such a, a dominance on the, the global scale that you know they're they're very concerned with with maintaining that dominance, right? They're able to you know, exercise their power, uh, you know, whether it's through sanctions or other things, because of the dominance of the U.S. dollar that again doesn't exist in Canada. So, just the influence that digital currencies will have as this evolves are really really interesting to work through, just because the problems are so different, or, or not problems, or maybe opportunities as well are so different depending on which country it's being applied to. So then, you know, diving into El Salvador again, I think it's really interesting that they were able to, uh, you know, pass this law because there really wasn't any of those barriers. So because El Salvador is based on the U.S. dollar, because 70% of the population does not have access to a bank account, the disintermediation of a banking in that becomes less of a challenge and it becomes an opportunity for them to put a Bitcoin wallet uh, in everyone's hands, which I think is really exciting for the people of El Salvador. So on that, like, I see the the value in it, particularly when you, you know, the use case of El Salvador. But like, if you think about what happened during COVID and the amount of, you know, money that was injected into the system to sort of salvage the economy and in the system, like when this is all decentralized, and this could be a question that's not even fair, I don't know, but um, how does, you know, a world that's on totally decentralized currency do what we've just done over the last year and a half, which is kind of prop up the economy to keep the keep the ball rolling forward type thing versus having a, a big bust. Yeah, it's it's a great, you know, great question, right? And and the answer may be they can't and they have to find a different way. I, I think again, going back to the El Salvador example, because they're based on the US dollar, they didn't have that already. Right. So whether they 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 change from the US dollar to accept Bitcoin that wasn't a displacement, but it would be 100%. It would be an issue in Canada that does have its own currency and would have a different way to do that, right? 
even the way that the COVID subsidies were dispersed were very different in the U.S. versus Canada, right? So Canada did it through through the banking system, through being able to access you know loans, and uh, you know, obviously had a different proposal where you know you you qualified for subsidies if you're out of work. The U.S. just sent you know uh, two thousand dollars to everyone, which I thought was an interesting approach. So yeah, it's it's fascinating just watching how these things happen, but. And that's the argument that a lot of Bitcoiners make, right? Is like they they don't agree with the way central banks have have dealt with exactly the issues through the pandemic, and they don't like the amount of printing that happened, and therefore they view Bitcoin as the solution to stop that activity and and require the the central banks and governments to operate in a different way, right? And so I think a lot of people talk about the separation. Uh, for years ago, we separated religion from government in some economies, not all worldwide. And now talking about separating monetary policy from government is another uh, interesting uh, topic, right? So on that note, like you're slowly seeing the combination of crypto and traditional finance. And I think we've hit on a little bit of this, but how does that look maybe five years from now, do you think? Yeah, we're seeing some things come together. So I would say, you know, we're within our own client base, we're having individuals come to us that are very Bitcoin wealthy, taking loans against their Bitcoin and buying traditional real estate. So I think what we'll start to see is cross-collateralization of different assets. So kind of looking at things on a blended basis. I think the holy grail really is back to uh, global credit scores and global identities. I think if we can ever get to a place where everyone agrees that, uh, you know, obviously it sounds impossible when you think about the things that different governments can agree on. But to have a credit score that uh, traveled across borders, to have identity that, that traveled across borders, that's when anything that we do uh, that's technology enabled becomes really, really exciting, right? Because you can really start to bring different behaviors and, and different uh, access across you know, all different regions of the world. So I would say right now, things we're still operating in a world where traditional finance is locked by borders. Like when we do a, re- a residential mortgage, it's obviously based, uh, the underwriting for that would be very different even in Canada than it is in the US to some respects, uh, even based on the tax treatment of a mortgage itself, right? But we're working right on crypto rails that are global, but fiat that is is, is local and traditional finance that, that follows local rules. So I'd, I think that the lines of that are gonna become more and more blurred and it's gonna be exciting to see how that develops. On kind of a, a business opportunity level, we're seeing uh, banks, especially in the U.S., get very interested in the digital asset space. So a lot of banks starting to offer lending products, starting to offer the ability to buy and sell Bitcoin and other assets directly in your, your local trading accounts. And then also starting to see companies like Ledin go more into the traditional phase space. So I think the speed, I almost describe it as like three lanes or three highways kind of all going in the same direction. And the speed at which uh, will depend, like obviously we don't have the resources that a a large bank has, but we can move faster. And so I think it's going to be interesting to see what, who wins and what, uh, maybe wins is the wrong word, but what gets kind of brought into the other space faster. Yeah. What emerges. Yeah. It's interesting. So fascinating. Good for you guys for tackling such a beast of a problem but also a solution mm-hmm. so yeah maybe switch gears to uh to you so you know when you start you assemble a team you're starting to build a business you're, you're getting some traction how does your day look today versus what it did and like how have you felt around you know transitioning and, and emerging as a ceo of what 
sounds like it will be quite a large, already is, and, and going to be quite a large business. I, I'm really enjoying that the state uh, that uh, we're in as a, as a business. So we're, we've gone from like, obviously, when you, when you create a business from scratch, uh, it's myself and, and Mauricio. And then at the beginning, quite shortly after that, a, a very small team kind of doing everything. So everyone wears multiple hats. Uh, everyone knows what essentially what everyone else is doing. And so you're able to kind of, you know, communication between each other is, you know, there's, is needed, but you, you kind of, you're finishing each other's sentences, right? You know, uh, intimately what else is going on, what has to be done. So as we've gone from eight people, you know, six months ago to, to 40 today, just the ability to, uh, then the need for structure is changing a lot. We've been able to become a lot more specialized in different areas. Uh, we've been able to bring in some really, really great people that are very excited about the space. So I've really enjoyed uh, meeting a ton of uh, people that are excited about this. I would say that overall, there's a massive change as far as the appetite to get into this space. So we're having very different conversations with, with different people that have been in traditional finance for a long time, or even other industries as well, and are crazy excited about getting into this industry. So the caliber of people, I think, is definitely what excites me the most and makes me the most bullish, if I can use that word, about the future of the space. And uh, yeah, it's just like, you know, as you get great talent coming into it, right, is like, you know, follow the brain power, follow what, uh, you know, talented and excited people want to build and do next. And that'll be a pretty good predictor of what's going to work out. So we've gone uh, in that. And so my, my day, you know, I really describe it as like trying to unblock the team. So I, I speak to you know, other leaders in the company a lot and, you know, every, every single uh, person in the company as much as I can and, and try to figure out what's holding us back, uh, what people need. Uh, we're lucky to have a lot of financial resources behind us. So that makes uh, the ability to uh, bring in great people easier. And uh, it also is to the extent that we need uh, other types of helping the business, it really helps things things move a lot faster. But staying organized is the main piece that I work on every day and, and try to make sure that, uh, the communication lines change and uh, you know the need to for structure uh, evolves. So yeah, just having a lot of fun building it out. Well, you sound like a pretty calm, smart guy. So I'm sure, uh, sure the culture is great. And, uh, and yeah, you can see how you'd have a lot of fun. Like it seems like you can You'd be a good guy to study the ship. Appreciate that, Darcy. You know, we have a really great team, so everyone makes it uh, easy for me. On that, do you think about like culture? Like it sounded like you started it kind of with friends that were sharp and you met in business school or whatever, but like, how do you think about, like, do you explicitly have like a thread that you communicate to all your new employees that, you know, around emphasizing culture or is it kind of just emerging as it goes? I joke a lot that the courses in business school that, you know, at the time you you thought were maybe the, the least important are the most important. And mm-hmm. so I think, you know, everyone dives into finance and then, you know, courses like organization behavior, you're like, okay, yeah, interesting, but I can't actually see that developing. And then you go through them and you realize that's the most important thing, right? Everything is people. If you can convince people to use the product, uh, if you can convince people to join you, uh, if you convince people to to trust you, that's everything, right? That's in itself what, what you need to do. So I think, you know, understanding how to motivate people, understanding what people want to do. And, and I think for most people, uh, when, we, when you think about like how to incentivize a group, you know, like financial is important, but I always think about, you don't really think about what you're making when you're there. You, you might think about that when, when you get home and what you're planning for as far as, you know, lifestyle, but people truly, you know, when you hire the right people, uh, they, they want to do great work. 
They want to be, uh, you know, recognized, but they also want to be recognized as a key part of the team. And so I think when you get that, when you can pull that out of people, and especially when you can really play to people's strengths uh, and, and recognize that, you get you get incredible performance. And I, I think we're, we're lucky to have a, a group that uh, really knows what they're good at, uh, really trusts other people on the team, and is excited to be here and is excited to, to build. And so I think my job is making sure that if people are putting in hard work and, and building things that we can release that as quick as we can, because we want to keep that momentum up and we want to make sure that we really recognize what everyone's doing every day to build a great uh, business. That's awesome. Sounds fun. Sounds great. Yeah, Exciting. it is a lot of fun. And so, yeah, that's uh, it's everyone keeps me energized. And as I said, we, we've got a really great group. So that's the best part about building this business. Well, as we think about sort of winding it up is there anything else that you would want to hit on just to kind of get out there or points you want to make you know i'll say to the the, the listeners you know we, we are looking for even more people to join us so uh if you're interested in the space i uh, would love for you to, to get in touch uh, you know i would say where we're going next is you know we're in 105 countries today we're mostly in canada the us uh europe and latem and we're going deeper into those markets but we're excited about other places in the world too uh, africa is a growing market for us uh, asia is growing as well so what is exciting is like we, we truly are building a global business and we're able to see who's organically finding the product, who's making use of it, and then double down on those markets. So if that excites you, again, you know, get in touch. I appreciate the opportunity to tell a story and tell more about uh, what uh, we're doing. Obviously, as I said, we've got a great group of people behind us and you know, I just get the opportunity to, to talk about it. And uh, most of the, the work and effort goes to all those that, uh, that are, are dedicating every day to, to build it out. So I appreciate it, Darcy. Yeah, no, that's awesome. So they can find anyone can find you at letin.io. Yeah, uh, letin.io is our website. I'm on LinkedIn, uh, Adam Reads, and I'm on Twitter too. Uh, again, just Adam Reads, all one word. Awesome. Are most of those roles like more digital, technical type stuff, or is it? It's probably a, a swath. So maybe they can just check it out on your website and go from there. Yeah, it's a swath. So so we have uh, letin.io slash careers uh, is our webpage. Uh, but I always say too, like. Sometimes the best positions aren't posted yet because a lot of you know opportunities have just come up because great people reached out and said, hey, you know, this is what I think I can do. Do you think that uh, I have a great skill set for what you need? And uh, oftentimes they write and, and we can use their help. So I would say, you know, even if you don't see something, feel free to reach out to me. And um, yeah, it's uh, it is across all sectors. So uh, engineering talent is is surely needed, but we are hiring across finance, uh, accounting, uh, marketing, uh, and legal as well. Amazing. Pleasure, Adam. You guys are, you're doing great stuff and uh, I wish you the best. For sure, we'll stay in touch. Maybe get you back back on here as the uh, Crypto Insights guy. But yeah, it's been awesome. Congrats on the success and, and good luck the rest of the way. Thanks so much for your time. Thanks so much, Darcy. Really appreciate being on the show. Yeah, you bet. Take it easy. Your time is valuable. So thanks for joining us for this episode of Venture and Gains, where we connect great people, ideas, and opportunities. It's this idea of net weaving versus networking. Stay healthy. Darcy McConvey is a director of private capital markets at Graybrook Realty Partners and is registered under Graybrook Securities, Inc. The opinions and statements expressed by Darcy and the Venture and Gains guests are their own and they do not reflect the opinions of Graybrook Realty Partners or Graybrook Securities. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions.